my, my wife and I just endured a, an ongoing battle with our child leading up to this point in the worship service. So let's talk about Jesus' love for children this morning. <laughs> Uh, back in November, I got to get together with a few friends of mine who are also campus ministers. We try to get together one time a year and spend a few days together and, and just share with each other the, the joys and sorrows of ministry and learn from each other and encourage each other. And my friend Darren, who's a campus minister at Purdue, he, he shared with us kind of a, a little manual for some time in solitary prayer. And we, we spent some time in solitary prayer during that trip with each other and kind of inspired by some of that material I had gotten from Darren, I I decided to spend my time taking a walk with God um, really with the mindset of being his son, God being my father. And that that was a powerful exercise for me. It was a really meaningful time where I was just able to walk and talk with my heavenly father and, and receive some peace for some things that are out of my control, some comfort for some things that, you know, I want to be flourishing more in. I received some motivation for some things I want to do differently, and I, I just received encouragement for things that are going all right right now. And, and that time spent with the Lord thinking of me as being his son and him being my father, it, it softened my heart. It it really helped that where maybe I had been callous to some things or defensive about some things in my life or embarrassed about some things in my life or overly competitive about some things in my life. And I think maybe that prepared me for a fairly recent study through Mark that I did with some of our college guys. And maybe it made me a little more receptive to a section in the, the Gospel of Mark that's caught my attention before in the past few years. So I kind of want to jump straight into that. One thing that really fascinates me about this section of Mark, we're kind of in chapters 9 and 10. One thing that really fascinates me about this section of Mark's gospel is his repeated emphasis on children and on childhood. And I have a theory that Mark was very intentional to present that emphasis. So I want to show you some of the things that I've kind of seen as I've studied through this section of Mark. In chapter 9, starting in verse 14, Jesus encounters a man who's asking to have an evil spirit driven out of his son. And Jesus asked the man how long his son had been afflicted in this way. And the man replies, from childhood. And this is interesting because Matthew and Luke, they also share this encounter in their gospel accounts. But Mark is the only gospel author to include this detail where Jesus asks how long and the man says, from childhood. Not long afterwards, in chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus takes a child in his arms, and then he tells his disciples, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Shortly after that, in chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And it's one thing that's interesting here is many scholars would say that by little ones here, Jesus, he's, he's actually talking about those who are young in faith, not necessarily children. But given the pattern that we're starting to see here with references to children in childhood, that makes the phrasing all that much more interesting. 
Later in chapter 10, we have the passage that Steve just read for us, where Jesus is indignant upon finding out that his disciples were keeping people from bringing children to him. And Jesus tells his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then afterwards, the man we've come to know as the rich young ruler, he he approaches Jesus and he tells Jesus that he's kept God's commands. This is how he says it, since I was a boy. And again, Mark is the only gospel author to tell us that upon hearing this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I love that detail. It's as if the man's reference to his youth reminds Jesus of something about him and causes Jesus to look at him a little differently. Maybe it even makes Jesus a little more aware of how much he does love him. And then lastly, after the rich young ruler declines Jesus' invitation to sell all he has and to follow Jesus, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples react in amazement to this statement. And Jesus doubles down again, saying in chapter 10, verse 24, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this is a unique occurrence. And not just in Mark's telling of this story, actually. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only time we ever see Jesus addressing a crowd as children. So I hope that I have you at least open to considering that something's going on here. There's something about childlikeness that Mark is directing our attention to, even though we never receive a detailed explanation. But, maybe you can see these pictures up here. If we've watched any good Christmas movie, we're familiar with the concept, right, of a true believer child helping a hard-hearted grown-up become a little more faithful in seemingly unbelievable things. And I do want to offer a little disclaimer here, because on the other hand, let's not go overboard and pretend that childishness doesn't come with its own problems. We're under no such illusions. And Paul himself, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So we recognize that growing and maturing, they're good and they're necessary in the life of faith. The problem, however, is that we all grow in some bad ways. And so there's a lot going on in this stretch of Mark's gospel. And we're not going to have time to unpack it all this morning. But in the midst of all these references to children and childhood, there are a few other noteworthy phrases that Mark repeats. And they give us a good glimpse of some of our biggest grown-up problems. And that's what I would like for us to spend a little time thinking about today. And so there are three things in particular that catch my attention, and I see them speaking to us on these levels. The heart level, the soul level, and the strength level. And we'll get into that. So the way we're going to go about tracking these noteworthy phrases, I just want to prepare you for this. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit, and I've tried to make it a fairly smooth, coherent ride, so hopefully it won't feel like like that classic murder mystery situation where the investigator who's often kind of off their rocker, makes an absolute spider web of red threads from one note to another. Hopefully this will feel a little more connected 
than that. But I'll say this. If at any point you feel that you need to slow down, or even if this would be the best way for you to just spend this entire sermon time, I invite you to reflect on how your inner child might be inclined to experience the kingdom of God in ways that you're less inclined towards at this point in life. I'd say that would be a morning well spent to give some time to that. But let's move on here. At the heart level, the grown-up problem that we see is indignance. And as we've already seen from chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, it says he was indignant. And this word, indignant, it conveys some seriously deep emotion. Some Some versions translate this word as angry or displeased or irritated. But really, that's a pretty weak representation. It doesn't really do it justice. Being indignant is more along the lines of being aggrieved or offended or incensed. It's a reaction to having been wronged personally or having seen something that deeply violates one's sense of right and wrong. It's the feeling out of which you might say to someone, how dare you? And what is it here? that incites Jesus' indignation. It's having little children turned away from him. So as we're already seeing from this section in Mark, children have a very special place in Jesus' heart. They seem to bring out a certain type of gentleness in Jesus. He holds them in his arms. He places his hands on them, and he blesses them. And he sees in them a level of receptiveness to the kingdom that's exemplary, even rare in comparison to those who are more grown up. Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Elsewhere in in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, there's this really cool line. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often... I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. And I love this image of Jesus kind of as, as mother hen. It shows us how devoted and nurturing and protective he is of his little ones. So what we need to recognize is that the longer we live in the world, the harder our hearts tend to become, and Jesus becomes indignant when those who would come to him with a soft heart are turned away. And it's interesting, it's even a little confusing or frustrating that Jesus offers no further explanation as to why or how children receive the kingdom better than those who are older. But I think we're given a pretty good hint when we see the contrast between what makes Jesus indignant and what makes his disciples indignant. We see later in chapter 10, starting in verse 35, James and John, they approach Jesus privately, and they tell him that they want him to do for them whatever they ask. And when he asks them what they want him to do, they respond, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus tells them that they don't know what they're asking, and it's beyond even him to grant their request. But then in verse 41, we see that the other ten disciples catch wind of what James and John have done, and they become indignant. So we see Jesus becomes indignant when his followers turn away those who would be most receptive 
to him. But his disciples become indignant when they're undercut in their own pursuits for glory. We're told in chapter 9 the disciples already had a debate going on about who is the greatest. And we'll look a little more closely at that in a few minutes. And so what caused indignance here was the feeling that James and John were trying to take for themselves what every other disciple felt was rightfully his. Jesus said earlier that it's from the overflow of our hearts that we speak. And maybe we could say that it's from the boiling over of our hearts that we become indignant. And maybe we could say that the older we get, the more likely we are to stow away capacity in our hearts for indignation over selfish things instead of kingdom things. So we ought to do a little heart assessment and ask ourselves, what tends to make my blood boil? What selfish things set off my alarm for injustice maybe more than they should? And what kingdom things seem to get Jesus indignant, but not me? So there's some stuff on the heart level. Next we're going to look at the soul level. And the grown-up problem is faith. And when I'm talking about the soul level here, what I mean is the place at the center of our being, the place where we hold our deepest beliefs, the beliefs upon which we build our lives. So what might be some of those underlying beliefs? You know, some of you hearing this message might not yet have made the decision to put your faith in Jesus and follow him with your life. And to anyone for whom that's the case, I just want to say that I hope you catch a glimpse this morning of what a compelling and worthy Lord and Savior Jesus is. He knows you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you enough to have laid down his life for you. He calls us to deny ourselves and put our trust in him, and he tells us that in doing so, we will find life, full life. Most of you have accepted that invitation. And we walk by faith as well as we can, as well as we know how to. But other stuff gets in all the way down to the soul level, especially as we grow up and spend more time in this world. We place too much hope in wealth and possessions. We place too much hope in accomplishments. We place too much hope in relationships. We place too much hope in pleasure, in institutions, in human thinking, in medicine, in therapy, in technology. These are all gifts and resources that God gives us. But when they get out of order in our lives, when we start to place our hope in these things and look to them for wholeness, our souls get out of balance, and we believe a little less what God can do, what God is faithful to do in our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, we might admit that we can grow to believe that these other things offer us fulfillment that God cannot So in this stretch of Mark, Jesus reminds us a couple of times about just how much God can do. First, back to the story of the the father of the boy possessed with an evil spirit. Um, This man displays a lack of faith, but also a remarkable level of humility and honesty. And Jesus tells him something amazing just before he does something amazing. So picking up in chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. 
Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus then casts out the spirit, who exits the boy's body very violently, and it appears that the boy is dead. But Jesus takes him by the hand, and he lifts him up, and the boy stands on his own, healed. Not long after, Jesus makes another, another powerful and strikingly similar statement about God's capability. This time it comes in his discussion with his disciples about how exceedingly difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We saw earlier how after the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Jesus proclaimed to his disciples in chapter 10, verse 25, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then picking up in verse 26, it says, The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So Jesus says, Everything is possible for one who believes. All things are possible with God. What grown-up beliefs restrict our ability to take Jesus at his word here? In one case, the placement of hope on riches and power prevented Jesus' closest students and friends from realizing the riches of his saving power. And in the other case, because a man had nothing left to place in his hope but Jesus, the man discovered a new level of hope, and Jesus came through in an amazing, life-changing way. So we can ask ourselves, what grown-up beliefs, what selfish beliefs, what perfectly reasonable-sounding beliefs, what foolish but untested beliefs blind us from seeing the balance and wholeness that Jesus can bring to our souls? Lastly, we're going to talk for a minute about grown-up problems at the strength level. And the problem is selfish ambition. And by strength level, I simply mean our effort level, our action level. It's the level at which we put our hands, bodies, and minds to work. And one of the most common motivators this world will give us for our work is selfish ambition. We're taught to build our lives around our desires, whether it's to hold a certain station in life, to gain power over others, to ascend to a certain level of wealth, to maintain a certain level of control or mastery over our circumstances. In the book of James, we find some very strong words against selfish ambition. As a nice summary statement, though, James writes in uh, James 3.16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Jesus asks at the end of Mark 8, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Even as we seek to deny ourselves and follow Christ, we nurture attitudes and behaviors of selfish ambition, and we manage to tear down or at least neglect others in the process. Those with soft enough hearts will hear Jesus' call to a better and more freeing way. We mentioned earlier that the disciples had a debate going on about who was the greatest. Let's see how Jesus responds. There it is. Picking up in chapter 9, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked him, what were you arguing about on the road? 
but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. Again, after the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus and Jesus proclaims to his disciples both how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom and that all things are possible with God. Jesus speaks to the level of sacrifice that must be made to follow him and the reward that one can expect in return. So picking up in chapter 10, verse 29, it reads, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Lastly, we hear something similar. When the ten disciples become indignant with James and John for scheming to secure the best eternal seats next to Jesus, Jesus responds to them in this way. He says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's known as the great reversal. Everything around us teaches us things that we can earn, the things that we build, the things that we can accomplish. Everything around us teaches us that those things are the things that bring meaning to life. But Jesus says, not so with you. The first must become last. The greatest must become servants. And this is the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. And we can see why it might take the faith of a child to believe it. But it's real. Jesus has done it in the best way imaginable, and he calls us to follow him. You know, we... We've got grown-up problems. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, but there's a lot that gets in the way. And generally speaking, the longer we live in this world, the more we have to lay down, and the less likely we are to do it. We need to remember how much more freely and fully we as children would have been inclined to accept Jesus' invitation. But the good news is that there is a Redeemer Jesus knows us, he sees our inner child, and he calls us into the delight of rediscovering the best of our childlikeness. I love this quote from John Ortberg in his book, The Me I Want to Be. He says, redemption always involves the redemption of creation. The psalmist says, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. God wants you to become a new creation, but new doesn't mean completely different. Instead, it's like an old piece of furniture that gets restored to its intended beauty. Jesus promises that whoever loses their life for him and for the gospel will save it. If we will come to him with soft hearts, here's what we can trust. He will guide our hearts to burn for the same things that his does. He will show us that God's power goes far beyond what we believe. And he will teach us the joy that comes in putting aside our selfish ambition 
and loving to serve others. So as we go, I just want to encourage you to consider taking any or all of the following questions with you. How might I need to be a little more childlike? How might I need to be a little less grown up? And how might this help to deepen my love for the Lord at the heart, soul, and strength level? If you have any interest in saying yes to following Jesus, if you have made that decision, we want to invite you this morning to come and see. He is worthy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's continue in worship. Let's stand.